If you thought you were getting to listen to Travis, I am sorry, um, but I'm also excited to be here at the same time. So um, with that being said, if you don't know who I am, I'm Jared. I'm the youth pastor here. Um, I have the coolest, unapologetically, the coolest group of people in this church that I get to hang out with um, on a weekly basis. They're the best. They're, the, they're way cooler than me, undoubtedly. Um, but we're about to kick off a short three-week series on parables, um, on the lessons that Jesus taught in a way that are palatable, in a way that we can understand. Um, and I'm excited about this because I'm, I'm like infatuated with parables. I'm infatuated with the way they're taught. I'm infatuated with the way they're worded, with, with the crowd um, that he was teaching it to. And, and personally, I love them because he knew that we as humans tend to um, understand things better when they're visualized. When we can see it, we can understand it. When we can see it taught, we understand the material that's being taught. And, and this is true on many different levels, not just in the life of Christ. In fact, I think he probably perfected it. Um, but for me, I first experienced this probably whenever I was a kid with my mom, or more specifically, I can remember my third grade teacher um, had a stack of multiplication cards that each of them was a picture, right? And the numbers were tucked in there somewhere. But I remember there was like six times seven, and there was seven was jumping off of a diving board and splashing into the pool, which was, it was, just, it was something dumb, right? But every time I do multiplication, I think of the picture that goes with that multiplication because it's a visual thing. I can see it, I can understand it, and I know what's happening when I think of that picture. I can see the numbers, I can see what's going on. And, and there were several instances before third grade where teachers taught in a visual way, where teachers taught in a way where, where you could tangibly see something, or maybe it was like motor skills, but, but you were learning something else. And all of us have probably heard an analogy or, or heard a joke where they're like, little Johnny had 30 apples, right? Kind of like this uh, meme that's up there. Um, if you have 12 apples and you give your friend six, what do you have, right? A friend, right? But, but we've all heard those stories where it's like, little Johnny had 30 apples and he, he put 12 back on the shelf and he gave his friend six and took a bite out of two. How many apple seeds does he have? It's like, what does this even mean? But it's visual. You can picture the process of little Johnny having 30 apples and, and you see it. And I guess I've probably been that little Johnny one too many times being a youth pastor. I've, I've been the guy walking through Walmart with a basket full of pumpkins, 30 cases of water, 12 cans of whipped cream, and a frozen turkey. And they're like, what are you possibly going to do with this? And I'm like, don't, I, it would take too long for me to tell you. Right? But we can all visualize those things. We can see the math. We can see what's happening. And it's funny to think back to those early memories and to think back to those teachers, some great, some we won't mention, but the tactic of teaching in a visual way is effective. I don't think any of us would argue with that. It's much easier for us to understand a lesson when it's taught in a way that we can see it. In fact, um, I guess Travis is rubbing off on me because I never do facts, but Travis does them all the time. And I have two statistics for you. The first one is this, that approximately 65% of people are visual learners. That is the best way for them to learn. That is the easiest way for them to learn. And I fall somewhere in the middle of that statistic because like if you show me a picture of it I'm gonna remember it if you show me a picture of it I'll understand it and the next stat is this in 2016 a study uh, was done and they showed couldn't really tell you who they are but they showed that 90% of information transmitted to the brain is visual and visuals are processed 60,000 times faster in the brain than text is 60,000 times faster you see a picture and understand it than words 
that's incredible to me. And I, I feel that I get that in my life, whether it's math or reading or whatever. If you show me a picture, I'm going to understand it better. And it's no secret that we tend to learn whatever's being explained to us in a visual aspect. And even if it is text, we try to put it into a picture. And so when Jesus uses these parables to teach, it wasn't just to tell a random story or it wasn't just to buy time so that other people could get there. It was an effective way of communication for him to be able to share a lesson in a tangible way for the people in the culture of that time to understand and grasp the lesson and apply it to real life. It wasn't just some random thing that he did. It was on purpose for a purpose. And, and depending on who you ask, Jesus taught somewhere between 30 and 50 parables. It's kind of differing. Some of them two sentences, some of them 30 sentences. Like it was a lot of different ways and different things. But Jesus used this many, many times to repeat, even, even change the, the analogy, but use the same lesson. And sometimes I believe it's important for us to notice that in these parables, and specifically in the parable that we're going to talk about today, um, Jesus is very intentional with the style that he uses and the analogy that he uses. See, at the time, most people, and, and most of us here in the South, would understand that what's happening. But at the time, everybody understood gardening. Everybody understood how to grow something. Everybody understood what it takes to grow a plant, to grow a crop. And for many of us in the South, we, we have a grasp of that. Certainly, the town I grew up in, like, we had a little garden behind a shack and a chain link fence. Like, we grew somewhat cucumbers. They were, they were there, hit or miss. But, like, we grew stuff in our garden, right? We had a garden. We had uh, people, other friends that had gardens. Like, it was a normal thing in our community for people to have gardens. And so in many of the parables and, and in many of the stories that, that are through the life of Christ, and certainly the one we're going to look at today, Jesus used this imagery because it was easier to understand not only for that time, but also it would transfer into our time, right? It's, it's gardening and growing things is an art that's never going to be lost. If it was, we wouldn't have food. And so he uses this specifically um, for us and for them. And we're going to read in John 15, 1 through 8 today, just those eight verses. Um, and before we get into it, I just want to set the scene real quick for what Jesus is doing at the time and where he's at. Um, it's believed that he is in the upper room the night before he is going to be arrested and crucified. Um, he's talking to his 12 disciples. He understands what's about to happen. He's explaining to his disciples what's about, ha what's about to happen. And so he still chooses to use a parable or an analogy like this to, to translate the gravity of the situation. And so I'd like to start in verse 1, and, and then we're going to make some stops along the way and uh, fill up for gas and stuff like that. But we're going to start in verse 1. It says, I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. And so if you're familiar with stories or uh, movies, which I feel like most of us are, you would understand that this is very typical for a story or for a movie of any kind, right? You're introducing your characters. You're building your storyline, but to build a storyline, you have to start with who, right? There has to be somebody in the story. And Jesus lists two of the three characters, really the two main characters, Right off the bat, he says this. He says, I am the true grapevine, and obviously that's Christ. And then the second thing he says is that my father is the gardener, and that's God. And so we've got those two people figured out, lined out. And what Jesus hasn't said in verse 1 that we're going to find out here in a second anyway is that the third person or the third character in the story isn't just one singular person. It's all of us. The third person is us as the branches. And so when I think of the scene 
of the gardener. And when I think of his plants or, or a gardener and his whole garden, I think you and I can agree that the gardener is in control of the garden. That is the overseer of the garden. He's not limited to one plant. He's not limited to one branch. He is the overseer of the whole operation. And I love that he uses this analogy, that Jesus uses this analogy of a gardener for his own father because a good gardener or a true gardener takes tirelessly good care of his plants. Like to no end, he's taking care of what he has. That's his. He takes ownership of it. He is wanting to do everything he can for those plants. That good gardener oversees, nourishes, cares, creates things for him, provides for the vine. And this is certainly a reflection of our Heavenly Father because our Heavenly Father in His nature cares and nourishes and provides for the vine and the branches. And so now that we've kind of built the characters, now that we've kind of got our storyline started, and we're going to go ahead and read through the rest of the text or the rest of the, the parable that we have for today. Um, and then we're going to go back and we're going to look at a few of the things that, that jump out of the page. Um, so starting back in verse 1, it says, I am the true grapevine and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message that I have given you. Verse 4 starts like this. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me... You can do nothing. Not a whole lot of questioning that. Like, he's pretty straightforward. Verse 6, anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want, and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great joy or great glory to my Father. And so much of this, and if you've been in church long, then much of this seems like a simple concept, right? It's simple-minded. It's, it's easy to understand. It seems like it's not too big of terminology. It seems like there's a lot of application that we can just grasp and run home with, go ahead and get our Mexican food and get done. But the truth is that this is still relevant today because for years and years from this time on to now, people have struggled or branches have struggled with the process in, and the end result of this concept. It's not one or the other. It is most of the time both. They struggle with the process of how to gain this relationship, and then they struggle with the end concept because it's not what they thought it would be. And I'm definitely not pointing any fingers because I've been the ringleader with the whistle and the baton for most of the parades for this topic. But, but one of the things you and you hope for comfort. That's what retirement is, right? We, we all dream up comfort in retirement. And we don't only do this in our work life. This isn't something that's restricted to the business office, but we do this in our spiritual life as well. We plan our day and our spiritual walk for comfort, and we plan it for success. But what ends up happening is that we just try to invite God in on our plan, and we try to build our own comfort along the way. We try to keep doing our own thing. We're like, yeah, God, you can come on. Because we know that God provides comfort, and we know that God can lead us to success, but we want to try to figure it out for ourselves. See, the truth is that our, our purpose wasn't comfort and our purpose wasn't success, but our purpose is to be fruitful. Jesus mentions fruit or fruitfulness in, in some sort of way six times in these eight verses, and he really doubles down on the idea 
of fruitfulness. And, and this isn't a new idea. He's not introducing this to the disciples at this time. But the idea of fruitfulness goes back all the way to Genesis 1. I mean, he dropped Adam and Eve in a garden. How much more fruitful do you want to be? Right? And then he created everything. And he was like, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. This is going to be good. He created Adam and Eve. And what did he say to them in verse 28? He said, be fruitful and multiply. This isn't a new concept. This isn't a new thing that, that we're hearing for the first time. Being fruitful is riddled all throughout Scripture. It's, it's something that Christ has asked us to do, that God has, has asked us to do for years and years and years. And so even though we know that God can provide the comfort, and even though we know that God can give us success, it's not the reason we're here. It's not just for us to pile up everything and then one day get to lay back in our lazy boy. We're here to be fruitful. And so Jesus goes on to explain the relationship in which we can be fruitful, explain the, the grounds in which we can be fruitful. When he, he lines it out in verses 4 and 5, he says, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Those who remain in me, and I in them, will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Again, that's harsh, but I love that Jesus uses this analogy because it's easy for us to see the correlation. It's not hard for us to picture up a vine. It's not hard for us to, to visualize what a vine and a branch and a gardener looks like, right? Maybe yours has overalls. Mine certainly does. I don't know. But we can see that. We can picture that in our mind. And I would assume that, and maybe I'm wrong, but I would assume that there's not any horticulture people in the room, any specialists. I don't know. But... I know that I'm not a horticulture specialist, and I can still understand this. I would assume that we all have an understanding of, of the correlation between a vine and a branch and the branch and the gardener and the vine and the gardener. It's not hard to see. And so Jesus clearly points out that for the branch to produce fruit, there has to be a relationship between the vine and the branch. They can't be separate entities and still produce fruit. There has to be a relationship. And that apart from the vine, the branch is incapable of producing anything because the branch can't supply its own nutrients. It can't. That's just, that's just simple fact. And we all know that and we all recognize that truth when it comes to the garden. Most of us, if that was as easy as it was in the garden, golly, we'd be growing all of our own produce. But it's not that easy because those things that we know in the garden, they don't always transfer in our heart. They don't always transfer into our relationship with God. See, our problem isn't only that we strive and we think that our purpose is comfort and success, but our other problem is that we tend to try to be our own vine. We tend to try to be our own source of nutrients. We try to provide our own food. We try to provide all these things that, that Christ is wanting to freely give us, but we say, no, we can do it ourselves. We try to fabricate our own joy. We try to fabricate our own peace. Maybe you're trying to build up your own love or, or gain your own patience. But Jesus clearly restates the roles in verse 5 because he doesn't want us to forget that we're not the vine. He says this, yes, I am the vine and you are the branches. See, he knows that for a knucklehead like me, he's got to repeat things time and time again so that I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, that's not my role. Jesus leaves no room for error for us to understand that you and I are not the vine. And, and I know that there's a lot of circumstances where you're like, man, I've, I've tried to be the vine. I've tried to do it on my own. I, I've done this before, and I hit rock bottom, and I realized I can't do it, and so God is going to be my vine. But what you need to understand is, is that it's maybe not that you're trying to be the vine for yourself, 
but you also need to know that you can't be the vine for your friends. You can't be the vine for your spouse. You can't be the vine for your kids. You can't be the vine for your coworkers. Only Christ is the true vine, and I love that he uses that terminology because he says, I am the true vine. That means that if there's one true, then everything else can't be. Because even no matter what your intentions are, they can be as good as gold in trying to be the vine for somebody else or trying to be the source of life or hope or love or peace or patience. You're trying to be the source of joy for your friends or your kids or your spouse. But no matter what, when anyone else but Jesus is the vine, then that means that all that's produced is fake fruit. Everything that comes out of that is fake fruit because at the end, I'm not a vine. I'm going to run out. I'm going to tire out. I don't have the the nutrients that Christ can give other people. I don't have the energy and the love and the patience that Christ can give other people. And so if I'm the vine, I'm going to run out. I remember specifically when I was a kid, I don't remember if it was my granny or my meemaw that had a a basket of fake fruit. You, You all know what I'm talking about, right? Like the fake styrofoam oranges, the styrofoam apples. And like, I don't know who she was trying to fool because it was always just family. And she put it out every Thanksgiving and every Christmas. And we all knew it was fake. Like, there wasn't anybody walking in the room being like, oh, you got new apples. No, we all knew it was fake. But somebody along the way, probably me, but I'm not going to fess up to it, um, took a bite out of a red apple in that basket, 100% styrofoam. I promise you it was styrofoam because I'm not going to tell you why I know that. But it was styrofoam. Like, there was no doubt about it. It was styrofoam. And... And maybe you've tried it before. Maybe I'm the only one that's smart enough to do that. Um, But if you've ever tried it before, I would almost guarantee that you didn't finish that apple. Right? Because it's styrofoam. It's fake. When you bite into that apple, you know instantly that that's not real. And so for a lot of us, we try to tape up fake fruit to make it look like it's nice. We try to tape up fake things in our lives to try to make it look like it's dressed up. And, oh, there's a pretty basket. But who are we fooling? God knows it's fake. And as soon as somebody else tries to take a bite out of it, they're going to be like, there's no juice in this. This isn't an apple. This is styrofoam. And so we, we try to fabricate fake fruit. We try to fabricate fake fruits of the Spirit in our life, and we try to be that vine for somebody else, but it's going to run out. It's not the real thing. And there's another whole part of this that, that I would love to to discuss about fake fruit, but, but when you and I try to be the vine, we, we are incapable of producing real fruit. It's not only that we produce fake fruit, but when you and I try to be the vine, it's a counterfeit. See, God creates real fruit, but when we try to do it on our own, that means that we are deceived in that, and, and it's fake fruit, and it's not only just fake fruit, but we're incapable of producing real fruit. Because the thing is, is that real fruit is evidence of being attached to the true vine of Jesus. I feel like that's a no-brainer, right? But so often we try to to make real fruit aside from Christ. And the thing is, I I don't want anyone to have a misconception of the process. I don't want to get up here and say that, like, if you attach your branch to Christ, like, everything's going to be sunshine and rainbows, lazy boys and throw blankets. Like, that ain't the case at all. This is not... This is not what Christ says because there's another word in this parable that that he repeats several times and I think is important for us to look at and to dive into, and that word is pruning. In John 15, 2 and 3, he says, He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit 
so that they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message that I've given to you. And before I get into the clarification of pruning and, and what it is, I want to uh, say this to you. Pruning is an English word, if you didn't know that. Um, and in the original Greek, pruning really had two words that were synonymous that we use in our English language. It was cleansing and pruning. Um, I'm not going to try to pronounce the Greek word. I didn't even write it down. But synonymous to pruning was cleansing for this time. And so in the original Greek, it probably would have read, he cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit and prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they'll produce more. You have already been cleansed and purified by the message I've given you. And so they use that cleansing word there. And, and in both cases, I think we can understand and agree that in this context, pruning is not necessarily a bad thing, right? It's saying that you've been cleaned and you've gotten more. And so verse 2, I don't know if you realize, but like we like to be clean. All of us like to feel clean, but not all of us like to be pruned. Verse 2 sounds a little bit more like sling blade than it does a shower. And so we, we kind of resist that. And when we look at the word pruning, especially in the context of verse 2 and verse 3, it's a good thing. It, it's something that should, should give us a little bit of hope. And in fact, the, the context would tell us that pruning is good because pruning means more. It's ongoing. It's never ending. But sometimes what we miss with pruning is we can get all hyped up and excited about it, but we fail to mention that pruning is painful. And so when we work under this misconception that pruning is, is good, but it also feels comfortable, that pruning is good, but it also feels easy, when we start to work under that misconception, when we feel the Lord pruning things in our life, we say, oh, this can't be God. We say, oh, th this ain't it. Like, if, if this is hurting me, this can't be the Lord. If this feels uncomfortable, this can't be the Lord. And so we resist. We try to resist those things. And so when we look at what pruning is in Scripture, when we look at what Christ is doing in the lives of others, I remember just another story because I, I feel like I'm really good at those. I remember when I was a toddler, um, my granddad planted a bunch of pine trees on our, on our ranch up in uh, Clarksville. And uh, it was a great idea at the time. Loved it because he said there's going to be a ton of turkey and deer and all kinds of wildlife. And I was like, I'm game for that. Didn't know that 15 years later um, he would feel like torturing me was a, a good thing and handed me and my dad and himself a pole saw and said, we're going to prune, is literally the word he used, prune all the trees in this section of pine trees. And I was like, what? Just to give you a little bit of an insight, there was over 22,000 trees in this section. And so me and my dad and my granddad pruned for days and days and days, and my sister and I think other people joined in, but we pruned for days and days and days at these trees. And it was like, you get a ga five gallons of gas, a, a deal of bar oil, and you go, right? And so I can tell you from firsthand that pruning is painful. I couldn't lift my arms for like a week. But pruning in all sorts, not just in the pine tree setting, is painful. Pruning in, in a lot of different settings is painful. And even though pruning those trees had a purpose, right, because if you cut the limbs off, the, the tree's going to go straighter. The tree's going to be able to grow a little bit thicker. It's going to be better. And, and the purpose of that tree from the beginning was to be a warped two-by-four at Home Depot. And if we pruned it, it was going to be really good at that, right? But we understand that the purpose of our life isn't just for comfort and success. It's for fruit. And so pruning is necessary no matter what the pain is. 
And when it comes to our relationship with Jesus our, and our connection to the vine, we on the inside are not always to see, are not always able to see dead spots like the gardener is. The gardener is capable and the overseer of seeing dead spots in our life that need to be pruned. On the inside, we're not always able to see that. We're like, man, we've got all these branches, but God's like, half of them are dead. Half of them don't have any life. Half of them aren't producing any fruit, and so there's a pruning that needs to take place. And pruning, by definition, is the cutting away of dead things so that it can grow new life. And, and I don't know if, if you've recognized this or not, but time and time again in Scripture and time and time again when we talk about it, Sin is, is included in the terminology of death. And so when we talk about cutting away dead things, we're talking about cutting away sin and cutting away the things that hold us back and aren't producing fruit and aren't giving us new life because the purpose of pruning is to produce more. And if something's dead, it can't produce anymore. If something's dead, it's not going to grow back. If something's dead, it's not going to do anything past that point. And so cutting away sin in our life can feel painful, but I think most of the time it feels painful because we've either become too attached to that sin or we're way too comfortable in our sin. And so when we feel that pain, we're like, oh, this hurts, this must be a bad thing, but, but in reality, the sin's just become so comfortable to us that it feels like we're losing something that's a part of us. And we're not. We're about to gain something that's of God and lose something that's not of God, that's of sin. And so God asks us and wants us to prune those areas, not because he enjoys our pain, but because our purpose is to produce fruit. And so when God prunes and cleanses you and asks you to address the way you live and to do away with the things or to do away with the people that are in your life, it's not because God's a mean God and, and God just wants to see how big of a pile he can scrape up. It's because he wants to, to do a new work in you. We, we sang that song, A New Wine, and, and there's so much truth to that because a, an, an old wineskin isn't going to be able to hold new wine, and a dead branch can't produce new fruit. It's just fact. And so as we close out on this parable and as we get down to the nitty-gritty of it, I don't want us to, to miss the simple truths and the simple takeaways that Jesus is, is saying or trying to tell us through this story and through this parable. And I think that Jesus wants us to know that he is the only true vine. That apart from him, our purpose is out of reach. It was very clear, I believe it was verse 5, in saying that apart from me, you can do nothing. He wants us to know that there's a pruning process. And that even though it might hurt a little bit, it's absolutely necessary because it's the only way for us to grow more. That dead things don't belong in a body that he built for life. We're not meant to just hold on to dead limbs. We're not meant to hold on to things that are weighing us down or causing us to wither. And we all know that no matter how much a gardener longs for, for fruit, everybody plants a plant hoping to get the most yield out of it. Everybody plants a crop hoping to get the most out of it. But we all know that no matter how much a gardener longs for fruit to be produced from the branches, no matter how much God wants us to produce fruit, the gardener cannot force us to produce fruit. But the kicker is that God's going to provide us everything that we can possibly ever need to flourish, to grow, to produce, to be great, to do more and to do more and to, to reach generations and generations and to break generational curses. But it takes us choosing to take hold of that, to prune things out of our life, to grab the nutrients, to, to attach ourselves 
to the vine. And if we're receptive to the gardener's care and if we're connected to Christ, there will be evidence in fruit. There will be evidence by the things that we do, by the way that we live our life. And I typically like to end in a question. I just think that it's a great way for you to take something home. And, and hopefully, my, my hope in it is that you would, uh, it would spur questions in your home, that um, husbands would ask their wives ways that they are messing up, that wives um, would ask their husbands from a distance ways that they're messing up, and that you would be able to have a, an honest conversation about the things of your heart. And I normally try to end with one question, but I'm going to give you two for the price of one. Um, the first question is this. Are you producing fruit as evidence of being attached to the vine of Jesus? And it sounds super easy, but I really want you to think on this. I want you to take some time and, and really think through the fruits of the Spirit and the love and the joy and the peace and the patience. And are those things evident in your life? And if you are producing fruit, that's great. And if you aren't producing fruit, maybe you need to evaluate the vine that you're attached to. How are you trying to be a vine for someone else? But if you are producing fruit, here's the thing, the other question I would ask you is, are you receptive to God's pruning in your life? Are you receptive to the things that God's pointing out in your life and saying, hey, this is starting to die. This is starting to decay. This is starting to, to really not produce fruit, and I need you to address it. Because the, the simple fact is that even though we use stories, and, and I love that Christ uses these stories, we can hear a story that's as applicable as ever that tells us straight up, here's step one, step two, step three, and we can walk out of the door and eat as much chips and hot sauce as we want and forget everything. And so I think if we have questions and if we ask ourselves honestly and if we ask our spouse, if we ask our kid, if we ask our friends, how is this showing up in my life? How am I producing fruit? There's tangible conversations there. There's things that we can see in our life from the people that are closest to us to help us to grow. Y'all pray with me. Father, thank you so much, Lord, that you give parables to a simple-minded person like me. Father, that you allow us to learn in a way that means more to us, that you, God, you're so much smarter than anyone here, and, and you still talk on our level. You still talk in a way that we can understand in a way that we can grasp. Father, I pray through the situations and the circumstances where we don't understand what's going on. Father, that you would just give us your, your fruits of the Spirit. Father, that you would give us your love, that you would give us your peace and your patience to understand the process and how we are going to produce fruit through it. Father, I pray for the people in this room right now that are hurting people in this room that that are so confused and and just don't know what in the world happened or, or don't know where they ended up how they ended up where they're at but father i pray that you would just wrap your arms around them and make them feel the presence of the creator of the universe father i pray that you would be in this place that you'd be in our cars that you'd be in our office buildings father and i pray that we would ask ourselves what areas are you trying to prune out of my life what sin, what, what dead areas of my life need to be gone so I can produce fruit, not just for myself, but for generations and generations. Father, I pray that you would, God, that you would just stir some hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.